Welcome to the serialized audiobook Nocturnal by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti. This novel contains adult situations, violence, and is meant for mature audiences. Nocturnal is available in print, ebook, and unabridged ad free audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash nocturnal. Chapter 68 Mr. Biznaz and the Arrow Hello again, Officer Pookie. Hello, Officer Fucker Fucker Dicker Pricker. Pookie smiled wide. Biznaz was actually happy to see them. Biznaz, old boy, how they hanging? Long and red and ready for bed. Come in, come in. Pookie and Brian sat in the blue plastic chairs. Pookie was keeping a close eye on his partner. The night before, in the private autopsy room, Pookie had thought Brian was about to snap. The man's pain seemed to be gone, but he hadn't gone back to the reserved, emotionless guy that Pookie knew and loved. Now Brian's eyes showed a steady state of simmering anger, and he had an aura of impending violence that seemed a tiny spark away from erupting. This better be important. It's ten in the morning, and I don't even kick my bitches out of bed until well past noon. We found something else, Pookie said. Maybe you can tell us what it means. Brian, show him. Brian thumbed his phone, calling up a picture of the bloody arrowhead. He set it face up on the table's red velvet, then slid it forward. Biznas didn't move. He just stared down at the screen. He finally looked up. First at Pookie, then at Brian. Biznas started to pant. He tried talking without putting the voice box to his throat. Pookie couldn't make out the hissing whisper, but he was pretty sure there was a fucker and pricker in there somewhere. Brian pointed to Biz's throat. Your hardware, man. Don't forget your hardware. Biznas stared at Brian with real fear then remembered his voice box. He lifted the device to his throat. Sorry, I fuck, fuck. I mean, I fuck, fuck. I forgot myself. You've seen this before, Pookie said. Why does it scare you so bad? I'm not scared. I don't know what it is. Biz? Pookie said in a calm voice. That article you have on the Golden Gate Slasher, it's been wiped out of existence everywhere else. You know about the symbols. You know about Marie's children. You were writing a fucking book on the subject, bro. There's no way you didn't research the arrow that killed the Slasher. Mr. Biznas looked at each of the cops, then spoke in a tone so pleading, even the mechanical effect couldn't hide it. I haven't talked... I swear, mm, please don't hit me. Maybe Biz faked his Tourette's. Maybe he didn't. But Pookie knew he wasn't faking this. Wide eyes, fast breaths, open mouth, hands clutching. Biz thought he was about to get his ass kicked. We are not going to hit you, Pookie said. People are dying. We need to know how to stop it. Biznas just shook his head.
the first time Pookie and Brian had visited, Biznas had thought they'd come to rough him up. He'd thought that when they mentioned the symbols. Biz had formally requested info on the symbols 29 years ago, requested that info from the SFPD. Pookie suddenly thought of Chief Zhao, leaning forward, her knuckles on the autopsy table, threatening Brian Clouser with career destruction if not jail. Amy Zhao, Pookie said. You ever have a run-in with her, Biz? Or how about Rich Verdi? Mr. Biznass set the voice box down and put his hands flat on the velvet table. He took a deep breath, tried to collect himself. His left hand put the voice box back to his throat, while his right hand pointed to his thrice-broken, crooked nose. Mm, who do you think did this to me? Brian leaned forward. Zhao and Verdi did that to you? Why? She told me to stop working on the book. Mm, she bitchy, 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 cunty, cunty. Told me if I didn't leave it alone, she'd kill me. Amy Zhao beating the hell out of a civilian. A week ago, Pookie wouldn't have believed it for a second. Now, it sounded par for the course. Biz, Brian said, we're going after Zhao. She's protecting a vigilante killer. You help us find him, you help us bring her down. Biznas stared, his eyes narrowing in disbelief. He looked at Pookie. Mm, is this true? Pookie put his right hand on his heart. Scout's honor. Biz licked his lips, then nodded. He reached out a trembling hand, picked up Brian's cell phone, and stared at the picture. What kind of body did you find this in? Caucasian male, Pookie said. A cop killer. Six foot one, 230 pounds, full beard. Was he wearing a costume? No, Pookie said. He looked at Brian. But we think others who might have been working with him were. Biznas nodded, as if that was what he expected to hear. This V-cross is the symbol of the saviors. There should be another symbol on the shaft. An eye with a dagger through it. Brian took the phone, flicked it to the next photo, the arrow shaft, and set it on the table in front of Biznas. The fortune teller stared, then nodded. Saviors kill Marie's children. Your cop killer was in the cult. These symbols are on all of the arrowheads. He hand carves them. He, Pookie said. You know who makes these? Biznas nodded. If I tell you, promise you won't come back in a few months and beat me silly. Why would we do that? The fortune teller shrugged. That's what Amy Zhao did. I told you she roughed me up. She came to me just like, Dicker, pricker, you guys are now. She wanted info on the arrows, wanted to know who made them. I told her. Two years later, she and Verdi beat me up. 
told me if I didn't chitty balls stop working on the fuck-o-sniff book, they would kill me. Amy Zhao had been tracking down an arrowhead. Had she been tracking the person who killed the Golden Gate Slasher? If so, why had she then come back and forced Biznas into silence? You have our word, Pookie said. We're not going to lay a finger on you. Biznas held out a fist to Pookie. Word is bond. Pookie bumped fists and nodded. Word is bond. The fortune teller then held a fist out to Brian. Word is bond. Brian rolled his eyes. What are you, 16 years old? I'm not bumping fists for fuck's sake. Biznas didn't move his hand. Brian looked to Pookie. Just do it, Pookie said. Brian sighed, then bumped fists. <sighs> Word is bond. Biznas nodded and smiled. The guy's name is Alder Jessup. Pookie's skin tingled. Now they really had something. Biz, if Alder Jessup makes the arrows, who shoots them? I never found out that part, I swear. Brian reached out and gently took his phone. That's okay. Know where this Alder Jessup lives? Biz leaned forward, waved his right hand over the blue crystal ball. I see something in your future, officer. Dicker, pricker, fucker, sucker. Something we mystics call a Google search. He looked up. That's all I know. Good luck. Brian offered his hand. Thank you. Biznash shook it, then raised his palm and extended it toward Pookie. Up high, my nizzle. Pookie gave Biznass a high five, then followed Brian out of the office. Pookie already had his cell phone in hand. No call for the choo-choo today, Bri-Bri. I'm calling Black Mr. Burns and telling him to get anything he can on this Alder Jessup. Brian nodded. He seemed to be focusing on staying calm, as if he had to focus, or he'd wind up kicking the holy hell out of the first person to cross his path. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Chapter 69 Alder Jessup For the first time in his career, Brian hoped things would go bad. He hoped this Alder Jessup would start some shit, or maybe just turn tail and run. That would give Brian an excuse to take him down. Someone had to pay, and if Jessup wanted to find out how bad Brian could hurt someone, well, Brian would be happy to oblige. 
He and Pookie sat in the parked Buick, looking out at Alder Jessup's residence, 1969 California Street. The place stood out like a road whore at a convent. The wall-to-wall line of houses on that street all wore colorful paint, white, yellows, pastels, and terracotta brick. 1969, on the other hand, was gray, completely devoid of color. It looked like a haunted English mansion taken from some soggy countryside estate and jammed into the neighborhood like a fat man dropping his big ass onto an already packed bus bench. Half of an English mansion, that was. Just the left half. The right side of the house rose to a peak that just stopped. Below that peak was a half arch that once might have been intended as an entryway for servants or horses. Where the mirror half of the gray mansion should have been sat a modern three-story brick apartment building trimmed in white. Peppy, Hookie said. Martha Stewart doesn't use dungeon gray enough for my taste. Looks expensive, Brian said. What do you think it's worth, two million? Pookie laughed. <laughs> you don't get out much, buddy. This thing is 15 mil if it's a penny. And it's not a penny in case you suck at that multiple choice. Black Mr. Burns said Alder Jessup has lived here for at least 60 years. That's all we have for now. 60 years? Well, maybe Brian would have to cool his jets. No matter how churned up he felt inside, it wouldn't be cool to beat the shit out of a senior citizen. It's enough to get started he said. Ready? Pookie scooped up his stack of manila folders. Yep, let's go. They slid out of the Buick and crossed the five lanes of California Street. Four concrete steps led to an archway door that looked like it belonged in a church. An intentionally rusted gate made of cross-diagonal half-inch iron bars blocked the archway. Behind the gate, more stairs, at the top of which sat a fancier door into the house proper. The gate looked like a high-security rig, although you could reach right through the diagonal spaces between the rusted bars. In the middle of the gate was a small cast-iron image of Sagittarius, the half-horse, half-man archer. Pookie gripped the iron bars and gave the gate a shake. It would take a tank to get through this. There was a buzzer to the right of the door. Brian pressed it. Moments later, the interior door at the top of the internal stairs opened. The man that descended was not what Brian expected to see greeting them at a multimillion-dollar Pacific Heights mansion. The man stopped behind the gate. He looked at Pookie. He looked at Brian. Then he sneered. Who the fuck are you two ass clowns? He was in his early twenties. Five-eight, about a buck fifty. He wore a black Killswitch Engage concert t-shirt. A black belt with a silver skull buckle held up heavy black jeans. Black combat boots completed the ensemble. His short sleeves showed off intricate tattoos running up both arms. Silver bracelets decorated both wrists. Some thin loops, some thick bands with detailed engravings. A dozen small silver earrings pierced each ear. He also had a silver loop in each eyebrow, one through his lower lip, and a thick one dangling from his septum. His pitch-black sculpted hair hung down over his left eye. San Francisco Police, Pookie said. I'm Inspector Chang. This is Inspector Clauser. We'd like to talk to Alder Jessup. About what? About a murder. The tattooed man sneered. Got a warrant, bitch? Brian instantly disliked this kind of person, 
the type that hated cops for the intolerable sin of enforcing the law. Best to let Pookie handle this. O'Brien knew he'd want to rub the guy's face against the concrete sidewalk. We don't have a warrant, Pookie said. But if we have to go get one, someone is going in the back of a marked car, in cuffs, in front of the whole neighborhood. You think I care if any of the zombies around here see me in a cop car? Are you Alder Jessup? No, the tattooed man said. I'm his grandson, Adam. Pookie rolled his neck, like he was trying to loosen a deep kink. Adam, no offense, but you look like the kind of guy who's familiar with the back of a squad car. Am I right? Adam nodded. I'm guessing Grandpa Alder isn't. Am I right about that one, too? Adam stared hatefully, then nodded again. Fine, Pookie said. Now, unless you want me to come back here and haul Grampy Adler off in cuffs, stop busting our balls and let us come in. Adam thought it over for a second. Then he opened the metal gate. He led Pookie and Brian up the steps, through an ornate oak door, and into a foyer. Wait right here, Adam said. I'll go get Grandpa. Brian watched Adam bound up a beautiful staircase, the railing of which was so lacquered and polished it could pass for wood-toned glass. The man's piercings clinked as he ran. The foyer's furniture, paintings, and sculptures looked expensive. Brian felt like he was standing in a museum wing. Everything from the art to the marble floor to even the intricate wood trim on a velvet couch exhibited some kind of archery theme. Bows, arrows, arrowheads, archers. Moments later, Adam Jessup helped his grandfather down the stairs. Alder wore an immaculate brown three-piece suit. He walked with a long wooden cane topped by a silver wolf's head. Most of his hair was long gone, leaving a mottled scalp and a ring of fine white around his temples. Inspectors, Alder said with a light, airy voice. You need to speak with me. Pookie introduced himself and Brian again, then got to it. We're looking for information on an arrowhead that you may have made. Brian watched the Jessops carefully. Alder showed no reaction, but Adam's eyes dilated a little. He was nervous. Pookie opened a manila folder and handed over a printout showing Brian's cell phone picture of the arrowhead. Alder took the printout. Adam's eyes went wide. The old man squinted, then reached into his breast pocket and pulled out silver-rimmed glasses. He put them on gently and looked again. No, I'm afraid I don't recognize this. Alder was a cool customer. Brian knew his kind well, the kind that could lie with confidence and ease. His grandson, however, didn't have that skill. But you do make arrows, Brian said, and bows and all kinds of custom archery stuff. Alder smiled. You've been looking into us. How flattering. We do make custom weaponry, or rather Adam here does. Alder looked at his grandson and beamed with pride. My hands and eyes aren't what they used to be. Adam has the talent, though. His father, alas, does not. My son can barely do the dishes without chipping the china. Bad hands, you see. Twitchy. Certain skills can skip a generation. I know what you mean, Pookie said. 
My father is a whiz at Mad Libs, but my vocabulary is a bit thin, to say the least. A tragedy for me, but perhaps my future children will have the gift. Alder sighed. Ah, one can only hope, Inspector Chang. Brian, impatient, pointed to the printout. You're sure you guys didn't make this? I would certainly know if we did, Alder said. Pookie's cell phone buzzed. He pulled it out, looked at a text. Brian peeked at the screen. The text came from Black Mr. Burns. Brian couldn't wait for Pookie's slow play anymore. He wanted to shake these guys up. Mr. Jessup, is that the same story you told Amy Zhao 29 years ago? And what do you know about Marie's children? Pookie looked up from his phone with an expression on his face that said, What the hell are you doing? Alder took two cane-supported steps forward to stand face-to-face with Brian. Young man, Alder said quietly, whatever you think you know about Marie's children, you don't want to know more. Just leave it alone. Everything about the old man screamed wisdom and patience. He was the kind of person you listened to, even if you'd just met him. Too bad Brian didn't give a rat's ass about listening to anyone. I won't leave it alone, Brian said. And if you're tied up in it, you're going to find that out the hard way. Alder seemed to sag just a bit. He leaned heavily on his cane. Adam caught the old man, stopped him from falling. Leave, Adam said. Don't come back without a warrant. Brian wanted to punch them both. The old guy gets tired bit? Give me a break. Brian, Pookie said. We should go. But he... We've overstayed our welcome, Brian, Pookie said. Let's go. Brian ground his teeth. He took one more look at the Jessops, then turned and walked out the door. He needed to hit someone, and his partner was about one snide comment away from the nomination. Brian slid into the Buick and slammed the door. Hey! Pookie said as he got in. Easy on the merchandise. Nice fucking job having my back in there. You know those guys made that arrowhead, right? Pookie started the car. Yeah, I know, but there's more to detective work than yelling at an old man. Yeah, like what? Like that house, Pookie said. Black Mr. Burns ran the property records. The Jessops don't own it. Who does? An esteemed gentleman by the name of Jebediah Erickson. In fact, that house has been in the Erickson family for 150 years. So has one other house in town, a house very close to here. Why was Pookie chasing property records when the Jessops clearly had answers? So someone else owns the house. Why would that make you want to leave when they were about to give up the goods? Because Mr. Burns found something else about Jebediah Erickson, Pookie said. Thirty-six years ago, Jeb won a gold medal at the Pan Am Games. Take a guess in what sport. Brian's anger started to fade. Archery? Pookie smiled and nodded. Wait a minute, Brian said. Thirty-six years ago? So even if the guy was in his mid-twenties when he won, he's at least sixty. Probably not a guy who can do the things you saw. Probably not, 
But we have a gold medal archer who owns the house of a man who makes custom arrowheads. Think that merits a visit? It sure as hell did. Where is Erickson's place again? Five blocks away, Pookie said. Let's go see if he's home. Chapter 70 Jebediah Erickson's House There was something familiar about Erickson's house, but Brian couldn't place it. He must have seen it before. It was on Franklin Street, a three-lane one-way that pumped traffic from downtown up to the marina neighborhood. If you went north, you took Franklin. So sure, he'd probably seen the house in passing hundreds of times. Like the Jessup's place, this house was fairly colorless, gray trim against slate-blue walls. The house faced east, toward Franklin. A small yard sat south of the house, with a driveway at the lot's southernmost end. Where the Jessup's place looked like an old English manor, this house was all San Francisco Victorian. A round, four-story, window-covered turret rose up from the house's front right corner, peaked cone roof soaring high into the air. The entryway was a good fifteen feet above the sidewalk level, at the back of a ten-by-ten ten porch that itself was covered by a steeply peaked roof supported by ornate, gray-painted wood columns. The stairs started about ten feet to the left of the porch. Seven weathered marble steps perpendicular to the street led to a small square landing, then ten more steps running parallel with the front of the house. They walked up the steps. Brian took in the intricate, waist-high railing that lined the porch. At the back of that porch sat beautiful double doors made of thickly lacquered oak. There was something familiar about the place, all right, and more familiarity than he could know just from passing by. The place carried an aura, a disturbing feeling Brian couldn't nail down. The answers to everything were inside that house. He knew it, deep in his gut. Look at this place, Pookie said. What an awesome set for an episode of Blue Balls. Not in the mood to talk cop shows, Pooks. To the left of the double doors, Brian saw an ornate brass doorbell fixture with a scratched black button in the center. He pressed it. The disturbed feeling grew stronger. As they waited, Pookie rocked back and forth on his toes and heels. You weren't a negative Nancy about the show name this time. That mean you're down with blue balls? No, Brian said. It means I don't want to talk about cop shows. If you don't like my name, why don't you propose one? Brian sighed, cleared his throat. Pookie was trying to be helpful, trying to lighten the mood. <sighs> Fine, Brian said. How about Brian and Pookie? Pookie shook his head. That sounds like a pedophiliac puppet show. Brian pressed the door buzzer again. They waited. Still no answer. Come on, Pookie said. Give me another one, Mr. I Know Show Business. Fine, how about last names? Klauser and Chang. You know, with that curly ampersand thing. Pookie shook his head. Nope, won't work. First of all, I'll be the one nailing all the lonely wives of the murdering big business guys. That means my name has to come first. Chang and Klauser? Pookie shook his head again. That could be a police drama, if the show was about two gay cops that moonlighted as interior decorators. I'd watch that, Brian said, foregoing the doorbell to pound four times on the oak door. It would be like my favorite show of all time. They stared at the door, but nothing happened. They turned and walked back down the steps. 
Brian felt a sense of loss as he walked away, as if the mystery might vanish without him ever knowing the truth. Books, I have to get in there. This house, Erickson. This is the key to everything. How do you know? Brian shrugged. I just know. That's not much to go on, Pookie said. Yeah? Neither was a dream about some kid being killed at Meacham Place. Pookie nodded. Good point. It's risky to press our luck, though. Zhao will be informed of any warrant we try to get. Fuck warrants, Brian said as he opened the Buick's door. If she won't play by the rules, neither will we. We have to do this. I mean, unless you still think I'm crazy. Pookie slid into the driver's seat. Well, I wouldn't exactly let you babysit my kids if I had any. Listen, Bri-Bri, I haven't forgotten what I saw on the roof of Susan Panos' building. I couldn't forget that if I drank a gallon of Jack three times a day for a week straight. I don't know biology, but I've bought into Robin's social networking species thing. You social. Whatever. The point is, I'm with you on this. I'm down for the gunfight. We'll figure this out. But you are going to promise me that you will not roid rage your way into that house. We have to think about our next step. Pooks, you don't understand. Pookie slapped the dashboard. Shut up, Brian. Pookie wasn't smiling now. Brian closed his mouth. His friend wanted to be heard. I've stood by you, Pookie said. You owe me. You're not going in there without a plan, even if I have to knock you out myself. You can't knock me out. Pookie waved his hands dismissively. That's irrelevant. We're going to get the vigilante. We're going to expose Zhao. We're going to find the ZY killer that's still out there and anyone else who helped him. We'll get to the bottom of this Marie's children bullshit. But I've known you for a long time and you're way over the edge. Right now, you'll make bad decisions. I won't. So we do this my way. Agreed? Brian felt an urge to get out of the Buick, run back up those steps, kick in the door and let the chips fall where they may. He took a breath and fought that urge down. Pookie had backed him through all this crazy shit. That couldn't be ignored. Pookie was right. Brian owed him. All right, Brian said. What's the next step? Let me think for a minute. They drove in silence. Pookie didn't cut anyone off. He turned at random, obeying all the signals. Finally, the Buick turned down California Street, heading toward the financial district. The setting sun cast an orange-juice glow on the horizon, a glow that backlit the elongated pyramid that was the Transamerica building. We need more info on Erickson, Pookie said. Black Mr. Burns is digging as we speak. I'll also have Robin test the waters at the medical examiner's office, see if she can find anything. Okay, Brian said. What about me? Pookie smiled, nodded. You, my little Terminator, I'm not going to ask you to stay away from Erickson's house because I saw how you were looking at the place. I don't really want to hear you lie to me and tell me that you'll steer clear. So you do a stakeout, but you just watch. You do not approach. Give me your word you won't move without backup. It was one thing for Pookie to believe Brian wasn't a murderer but another for him to go all in like this. If the man had his head on straight, he should have cut ties long ago and moved on. Pookie showed loyalty, true friendship, 
you back your boy no matter what. And for that level of dedication, was Pookie really asking for that much in return? No matter how bad Brian wanted to go in that house and find answers, he'd do what Pookie asked. I just watch, Brian said. I promise. Pookie reached out his right fist. Word is bond. Brian laughed, and the sound surprised him. <laughs> Dicker, pricker, fucker, sucker, he said, and bumped fists. Brian felt better, and he had to admit Pookie's way was just flat-out smarter. The archer had survived a six-story drop, then promptly killed a man with a freaking arrow. If that didn't fit the description of bad motherfucker, nothing would. He was too dangerous to take one-on-one. -on -one. Brian settled back and looked out the Buick's window. He watched the setting sun sink behind the Transamerica building, counting the minutes until he could get out and hunt. You have been listening to Nocturnal by Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. The Nocturnal Audiobook was directed and engineered by Corey Young. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envisioned a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.